Welcome to Inside the Rope, a podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Key Gann, the portfolio manager of the L1 UK Residential Property Fund, a strategy that's closed end, that is, they raise funds every 12 to 18 months and then deploy those funds into a portfolio that can be invested for up to seven years in UK residential property. This is a very particular theme uh, that Key and his team have spotted in the market. The first couple of versions have been quite successful. Uh, the strategy aims to return 7 to 10% compound annual growth, uh, and the first couple of versions that they've deployed have in fact done that and quite a bit better. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed to be uh, personal financial advice or advice. I encourage you all to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and also to receive financial advice before making any investment decisions. Please remember to keep your uh, feedback coming through. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Key again, welcome to Inside the Road. Hi, thank you for having me. Key, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we, we got an update from Rob Bartlett back in uh, 2018. I'm not sure if you've been an Olympic rower in your past, but people, can go, <laughs> people can go back and have a look at uh, or have a listen to that podcast that we published back in June 2018 if they want to get um, some background to the the strategy that we're going to talk about today. But uh, Key, I thought it would be good if you could perhaps kick us off by giving us uh, a little bit of your background and how you, how you came to be running this uh, this strategy. Yeah, sure. So, so my background uh, when I left university was uh, joining Bain and Company as a strategy consultant, so advising corporates uh, and private equity clients. Uh, After Bain, uh, I joined Deutsche Bank uh, for 10 years, uh, working across private equity uh, and leverage finance. Uh, So that was across real estate, leverage buyouts uh, and leverage finance. Uh, Worked across Melbourne, Sydney, Hong Kong, as well as the London offices. Uh, And it was really 2012, 2013, when I moved uh, across to London, uh, the UK referendum occurred, uh, well, now it's quite a while ago, uh, we're still working through it, uh, but occurred in 2016. Uh, and on that day, it actually occurred uh, when I saw the sterling fell quite dramatically. Um, obviously, I had my savings in Australian dollars. Uh, I thought, well, with the uncertainty and the UK referendum, the pound weakening, Uh, what opportunity does it provide? Uh, And what I did on my own personal uh, account was I just purchased a flat uh, in Birmingham. Um, And when I made that purchase, I thought, actually, this is quite interesting because house prices in Birmingham uh, back in 2016 still hadn't recovered to their levels of 2007. Uh, Rental yields were quite high, so roughly around 7 or 8%. Um, because of Brexit, the interest rate environment was very low, so you could borrow at 2%, and immediately created an interesting opportunity where it was one of the few developed countries in the world where you could actually get uh, what we call strong positive gearing, uh, where you actually get a strong dividend yield um, on your investment versus most other countries uh, where you have negative gearing, where your rental yield is actually lower than your cost of debt. 
Um, from that, I thought actually this could actually be quite an interesting investment opportunity uh, for a lot of investors. Uh, I then spoke to the team at L1, uh, so uh, David Lamb uh, and some of, uh, and his brother Rafi uh, have a lot of long history with Bain uh, and actually worked with them uh, in my early days. Uh, and uh, from then they thought, it's a great opportunity, we want to put our own money into it, but we'd like to actually think it will be an interesting uh, fund for a lot of our investors as well. So you got together and you launched the first fund, when was that? That was in September 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we took the concept, launched the first fund. Uh, we raised about 65 million Australian dollars. Uh, and that fund is now fully deployed uh, in residential property across the UK. Uh, and it's generating a dividend yield to investors now uh, of about 7.5% per annum. And the capital growth over that period has been? So the capital growth is up around 28%. Uh, so uh, from a NAV perspective, uh, a lot of that growth uh, has come through from asset management, house price growth, uh, but also some improvement in some of the student properties we've invested in. Okay, and, and what's the process for revaluing those assets? Because you haven't taken them back to market in that time, you still own them. Yes. Um, do you have some sort of auditor, professional? Because you know th this is an opportunity here for people who are a little unscrupulous to uh, make make the numbers look yeah, better, better than they are. Yep. Mm. So uh, from a valuation perspective, uh, the properties are valued uh, on in two scenarios. So when we buy a block of flats, uh, we buy in typically a bulk deal, and it's a very transparent 20 to 25% discount to the retail value if you sold flat by, uh, each flat one by one. Uh, our valuation policy is always to value on the lower of the two, which is the bulk discount value. Uh, what we have done across the various funds is for certain non-core assets, we have sold off flat by flat and actually done it fairly quickly and actually demonstrated uh, values uh, actually in line with the retail value, if not in excess of it. So from a valuation policy perspective, it's been quite conservative. Uh, and really the uplift in the values have been um, the asset management where we've lifted a lot of the rents and also a couple of the student accommodation assets where we did purchase them out of receivership uh, and now they're generating rental yields of about 30% on our entry price, um, wow. which we disclosed, yes. Okay. So what does that portfolio look like? You've mentioned uh, student, student rental accommodation, yep. you mentioned Birmingham, what, what, what sort of areas and what sort of look and feel and what sort of price point are those properties? Sure. So the, the majority of the portfolio in both Fund 1, 2 and 3 is residential. So about 80 to 85% of the fund is in residential property uh, in what we call Tier 1 cities. So we're focused on the large cities outside of London. Uh, so if we think about the largest exposures, uh, it would be Leeds, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield, and Nottingham. Uh, we do invest approximately 20% uh, of the fund uh, in student property, uh, where we think there's a bit of a special situation scenario where we can buy uh, out of receivership uh, or from someone in, uh, who needs the cash up front um, and turn them around. Uh, so I would think of the portfolio as uh, somewhere between 10 to 15 assets uh, in blocks of flats uh, in tier one cities, city centres outside of London with two or three student properties or commercial properties um, where we think there's a bit of a special angle. And, and why does that opportunity exist in student accommodation, for instance? 
uh, you know, why would people be going into receivership if these are such good assets? Uh, so in, in the scenarios where we have invested, it's, it's, it's a bit more of our detailed diligence uh, where we formed a different view to the rest of the market. So if I take an example in Fund 1 uh, where we invested in a building called Rialto Court uh, in Stockton, uh, the backdrop was uh, the property had fallen into receivership uh, because a new university was starting on site uh, called Study Group uh, and no one really knew how many students they would have long term. Um, the diligence that we did um, and our, our knowledge of study group and being an Australian operator, we had a lot of conviction that they actually would have a lot more students than the number of student beds on campus. Uh, that thesis turned out to be right. Um, and what we've now done is we've now signed a five-year rental guarantee with study group um, at about £2.3 million, um, which translates to about 30% yield on our purchase price. Um, the valuer has uh, revalued that property uh, to about 13 or 14 million pounds, um, and that's one of the drivers of the uplift uh, in NAB. So I'd say it actually comes down to a lot more of the diligence process. Um, you know, we're not just buying uh, properties and, and playing on the market theme, but we often ask ourselves, um, is there something that we understand from a diligence that's better than others? Is there an asset management angle um, that we can add? Uh, is there a bit of value add upside of refurbishments uh, or repositioning of the asset where we can make a bit more of a difference? And when you're acquiring these properties, who are you competing with? Uh, so, so from an investment perspective, we really, because of the size of our funds are really around 50 or 60 million, our typical sweet spot is a purchase price between three to 10 million pounds. Uh, and in that price bracket, there's actually uh, too, it's actually too small for the institutional investor who really focuses on 50 million or 20 million pound investments or above. Uh, and at three to 10 million pounds, it becomes quite expensive for a lot of the individual high net worth investors to be buying a large block of flats in Liverpool uh, or Manchester. So there are a couple of other funds uh, investing uh, in a similar strategy to us, um, but there's actually a lot less competition um, in that price bracket, given the supply or the size of the market in the UK, um, which we find uh, it's a more, more, more compelling um, to be picking up um, valuable properties at better prices. Are those larger funds uh, a likely exit to this strategy or you know the, the first version for instance? Yes, so uh, our exit strategy will be on whatever the, the right route is to maximize value. So we think uh, the bulk of the portfolio where once we have a, a asset base north of 100 million, 200 million pounds, it becomes a lot more compelling to the institutional investor um, who probably won't need seven, eight or 9% gross rental yield, but something much closer um, to six or seven. Uh, additionally, what we do do uh, is uh, a key thing required by institutions is really two or three year financials. So from the developers, uh, receivers, housing associations, the nature of the, um, of the sellers we buy from, they won't have uh, historical financials. Um, ultimately, institutions want to buy off a yield and income play, we'll provide that and also we'll provide scale and it'll be professionally managed. So uh, for a lot of the core assets, um, an institutional asset sale um, is one of the exit routes. Okay, we constantly read about uh, the inflated home prices, particularly in, in London in the south. Yeah. Uh, are you buying into any of those areas where 
you know, we, we have this image of, you know, I, I guess, rich Europeans and oligarchs and Russians uh, driving up record house prices around Hyde Park and in, inside of London. Um, how is that sort of valuation or that theme affecting what you're trying to do? So the fund invests uh, specifically outside of London and the southeast of England. Uh, so if we look at how prices have evolved in London and surrounding regions versus Manchester, Leeds and Liverpool where we invest, uh, house prices in London have doubled since the financial crisis. Uh, and that's really because the drivers of house, housing in these markets is predominantly a lot more overseas investors, particularly from Russia as well as Asia, who see London as a safe haven. Uh, outside of London, um, house prices uh, are still only getting back to the same levels of where they were in 2007. Um, but affordability is a lot stronger because interest rates are close to zero and people's incomes have risen by about 50% um, over the past 12 years. Uh, so about 4% or 3% um, per annum. So when we look at these regions, uh, people are paying around a 7 or 8% rental yield to rent. But if you actually wanted to buy, you can buy a home on a 2% mortgage rate. So it's actually not an affordability point. Um, it's actually around the ability to get a mortgage in these regions. So house prices outside of London are very affordable um, relative to people's incomes. Average house price is about 130 to 140,000 pounds versus central London, which is closer to a million. Uh, so the fund is really focusing on areas where it's affordable, uh, the yields are high and uh, people are actually having to rent, not because they can't afford to buy, but because the banks aren't lending uh, and the deposit ratios required um, just means that they don't have the savings for a deposit and are ultimately forced to rent. And, and why aren't the banks lending? Is that to do with uh, the implementation of bar one, two and three following the financial crisis or? Yes, so uh, part of it is the banks are governed by the EU mortgage market review, which came in 2014. Uh, so post the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 in the UK, the EU went through the sovereign debt crisis. So that's when you had Spain, Portugal, Greece, uh, all needing government bailouts. Um, the mortgage market uh, in the EU became ultra conservative uh, and that made it very restrictive for people um, borrowing uh, as they needed to meet uh, strict loan to interest serviceability tests, um, income tests, um, and that has basically been a policy that's been a bit more of a one-size-fits-all um, for all countries within the EU. Um, and as a result, banks have been very conservative. Uh, loan to values are very conservative, and that's actually making it harder for people to actually make the purchase because they don't have that deposit. Um, I think a very simple statistic is um, a Knight Frank just con conducted a survey uh, of renters around the country. 68% of people are renting because they don't actually have the savings to fund a deposit to buy a home. Key, you're painting an image here, and I'm, I'm, I've got one in my mind, of lower socioeconomic areas when I hear you talk about uh, Leeds, Sheffield, etc. I yep. might be thinking of areas that... Um, you know, in the digital age, these may have been industrial revolution type uh, yep. towns and areas that have now fallen onto harder times. Um, a, is that accurate? Um, and, and what's their current economic situation like? And B, is that being reflected into your uh, vacancy rates or their ability to actually pay the rent? Yeah. So, uh, uh, 
when when people think of the UK, they they often think about London. Uh, London is only around twelve percent of the population. Uh, the remaining ninety eight percent or so uh, actually live uh, outside of London. Uh, and the cities that we focus in are really, if you put it on a map, it's really the top ten cities in the UK by population size. So, for example, when we invest heavily uh, in Birmingham. Uh, what's actually happening in Birmingham is from a population growth, from an income growth perspective, it's growing by a factor of two or three times faster than the rest of the UK. Uh, what's driving that, um, a lot of corporates uh, in London and in Greater London are actually moving more recently to Birmingham. So for example, uh, Deutsche Bank, where I've worked, um, recently moved 5,000 people from central London to Birmingham. Santander moved a lot of the middle office there. HMRC has also relocated uh, to Birmingham. Uh, Manchester, uh, it's about five years ago, uh, the BBC relocated from Greater London to Manchester. So a lot of the larger corporates are finding um, one from a cost of operations and also a cost of living um, for their staff. Uh, relocation to some of these other cities uh, makes a lot of commercial sense. Uh, and that's what's driving a lot of the gentrification uh, in the T1 cities outside of London. Um, and it's a similar theme happening uh, with Leeds, with Channel 4 re re recently relocating, and also HMRC moving a lot of staff from the north of England um, and 50,000 workers uh, down into Leeds city centre. So uh, we, we won't be targeting the, the prime white collar workers that you get in central London. But we're focused on um, places where um, people have good incomes, good jobs, um, house prices are very affordable, uh, where we see um, a lot more longer term growth. So vacancies and, uh, you know, in yeah. arrears of rental, has, has that been an issue at all for you within the, the first three? Yeah, so, so the vacancy rate across the entire UK uh, is about 3%. So the UK hasn't been building enough housing relative to household growth. Uh, in terms of arrears, uh, it does vary across uh, by city, um, but across the portfolio, we're tracking at about 5.5% um, of rents which are in arrears. Uh, and that comes down to uh, certain locations where if the tenant mix is a bit more student, there's a much more high arrears. Um, but really the majority of our buildings are typically very modern buildings built in the past 10 years. Uh, in the city centre, um, and we're targeting a bit more um, of the professional students, um, those type of um, people who will actually look after the property and meet their rents on time. So, Key, I, I guess something that's very topical, and it has been for an amount of time uh, now that just keeps to dragging, dragging on and dragging on and dragging on, is Brexit. Yep. Um, a, how has that affected the strategy that you're deploying now? And B, uh, what, what is your view going forward? And, you know, I, I put the waiver in the hand straight away that uh, many people have fallen along the wayside yep. and got that one wrong over the last uh, three or four years. Yeah, sure. So on, in your first part, how, how has it affected uh, what we're doing uh, and the market? So it, it's, uh, I, I think over the past five or six years, house prices outside of London have been growing uh, at four to six percent. Um, and that's really been driven by a low unemployment rate, below 4%, strong nominal wage growth at 3% per annum, uh, and uh, affordability, where um, prices are only starting to recover to where they were in 2007. Um, I think particularly over the past 12 months, uh, with uh, the Brexit uncertainty having a greater impact on people's appetite um, to buy a home, 
Um, the market has now slowed. So um, house prices outside of London in tier one cities are growing uh, instead of between four to 6% are closer to two or 3%. So right now, um, people are saying, well, I don't need to buy right now. Um, let's hold off making a decision until there is clarity. So to some extent, the market has slowed uh, and, st and stalled in terms of transaction volumes. Um, going forward, um, it's, it's again, relatively uncertain. Um, I think what is clear is that neither the UK or the EU want a no deal, hence why the timeline continues to be extended. Um, at this point, as we're speaking today, there is a general election uh, next week on, on the 12th of December. Uh, we'll know uh, which party will get through. Uh, if it is Boris Johnson who is re-elected, uh, it is very, uh, it's more likely now he may be able to get a deal before the 31st of January. If it's any other option uh, in t or even a hung parliament, um, more than likely it will look like there will be an extension um, as the other party's options are to either revoke um, Article 50 and cancel Brexit altogether um, or go for a people's vote or a second referendum. Um, so uh, ultimately an extension uh, is probably not great for the economy because it just means ongoing uncertainty. <clears throat> Um, but um, you know our base case now is it's probably possibly that it could be uh, a deal could be feasible by the 31st of January, in which case there'll be a bit of a re-rating in the pound um, and the confidence is just a stored um, from a macro perspective. And as an investor in this fund and, and the person who runs this fund, uh, what, what would you hope happens? What's most advantageous for these assets? Uh, for for ex existing assets, it's, it's ultimately some certainty. Um, I, I don't think it will lead to a Brexit bounce in the housing market because uh, the housing market does take um, a bit of time. Um, but um, having a deal, um, ultimately, if, if it's not January or soon, um, some return of certainty in the market um, will lead to a stronger economy, um, jobs uh, continuing uh, to stay within the UK, uh, and a longer term recovery in the housing market. So um, we think for existing investors, um, that really is uh, a good outcome. Um, for uh, future funds, uh, as Fund 3 is still currently investing, um, the uncertainty is actually not such a bad thing uh, because we do realise that it's a very low likelihood that there will be a no deal exit. Um, and the ongoing uncertainty is actually what's allowing the fund uh, to continue uh, investing at compelling prices. And what's the pipeline look for future funds? Uh, so uh, the, the strategy of the fund is to raise a fund every 12 months. Um, our focus is on, uh, is on raising somewhere between 60 to $65 million. Uh, so there's no pressure to invest and we can invest in very selective assets. Uh, so the next fund uh, we anticipate uh, will be uh, open in around April and closing in July, uh, in line with Fund 1, 2 and 3. And uh, Fund 3 is still deploying assets, is it? Co still correct, on? yeah. So fu Fund 3 uh, has uh, is probably about 50% deployed, so we've deployed mm -hmm. most of the equity now. Um, we're now refinancing the assets um, to uh, bring in some bank loans to basically optimise the returns for the fund. And, and what sort of debt do you have inside those portfolios? So across fund one and two and three, uh, the loan to value is 50%. Uh, so what we strive to do uh, is keep strong headroom versus the covenant levels, um, because that's particularly critical in this environment. Um, but uh, also we find, well, if the cost of borrowing uh, is at about a 2% margin above LIBOR, 
uh, it's actually very accretive to the borrowing, uh, particularly where rental yields are. Um, so, so what sort of correction in property prices would you need to have to have pro to result in problems in those portfolios? Uh, so, given the current headroom, uh, it's about twenty to twenty-five percent uh, decrease in property values um, before we actually get to headroom pressure. Okay, and the term of those funds. So each fund is up to seven years. Um, so we have an obligation to actually be fully uh, disposed by the time we get to year seven. Uh, but I think that the way we approach it is uh, the first 12 months is to be fully deployed. The next two to th uh, year four or five is to really asset manage the assets um, and return a strong distribution back to investors. Uh, and then closer to year five to seven, we'll actually start that dis disposal program. And do you think that uh, will be a tough conversation, the disposal program, or do you get the feeling that there's people queuing up to take these assets? Uh, the, for us, it's to actually have multiple disposal routes. So if we if we had to sell non-core assets on a flat-by-flat -flat basis, um, we've actually been able to do that quite quickly and efficiently at the retail value, um, where we've uh, achieved that in fund one, two, and three. Uh, and uh, the dialogue that we've been having uh, relatively early with some of the institutional investors uh, it appears that the portfolio that we have uh, in place, provided we do reach the scale that it becomes relevant, becomes um, very uh, interesting for a lot of the institutional investors. So funds, Fund 1's valuation is now at about what value? It's at about £90 million. Pounds. So it needs about 10% more growth yep. to get there. Okay. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Uh, look, that's been fantastic here. Really enjoyed that. Is there anything else you'd like to add that you think that our listeners should bear in mind when considering or looking at investments such as this? Uh, look, I'm, I mean, keep a watchful eye on, on Brexit. Um, but look, I, I've, I've really enjoyed the chat. Um, it, it always is good uh, catching up um, and I appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Have a safe travel home. Bye. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.